0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hi and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at films playing in cinemas and also connects them to films from days gone by or current and more obscure films that share similar themes. But today we are spending the day in the here and now, the present and maybe even in the future with films from Finn the Atlantic International Film Festival, now taking place here in Halifax. I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Hi, I'm Karsten
0: Knox. I am a film writer, uh, blogger, and other film-related things. Uh, My blog is called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And
1: we'll be getting into everything Finn right after this.
0: The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author julia tertian the polite and proper great british bake-offs food stylist what do they all have in common they're all the intersection of culinary arts
1: and pop culture and they've all been guests on the food podcast a village soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens
0: of food if you really want to connect with someone just write them a letter It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history,
1: and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation
0: with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So when you're hearing this, this is kind of, it's rare for us to do something that's so timely, but we are diving in. We're recording this on the Monday of the the Fin Atlantic, Atlantic International Film Festival, uh, and you might hear it on Tuesday, you might hear it online, the whole shooting match might be over by the time you hear these these words, but... We have been spending a lot of time in the last week, well, since Thursday, certainly, but I had the good fortune to see some films in advance, and I think you did too, Stephen. A handful of things, yeah. um, As a result of our professional work as arts reporters here in Halifax. And so we're just going to run through some of the films we've seen, the impressions we've gotten. Uh, We've seen a lot of, of local films. I've seen a few international films. And plenty of documentaries this year. It's a really documentary-heavy festival this year, and I'm I'm actually kind of down with that. I I think their choices have been really good.
1: Yeah, I have uh, I haven't seen anything I haven't really liked yet, and often that's the case with a film fest. You go into something cold, and you don't um, necessarily, you know, it's like oh well, I've got. And I open 80 minutes. I think I can cram in a 70-minute donk before I get to my next feature or whatever. And uh, I, I've been pretty lucky. I, I haven't seen anything that I've considered to be a waste of time, which, you know, has happened when I've gone to larger film vests. And uh, especially if I'm devoting, you know, because we've got full-time jobs and I've got a couple of recalcitrant parrots to look after. <laughs> uh, and and there are lots of other things going on in town that I'm also kind of trying to keep tabs on. So so... Um, you know, every moment is precious. Sometimes I've gone to film festivals where I can just devote my whole time to going to movies, like going, you know, making a special trip to TIFF or whatever, in Toronto uh, or a classic film fest, you know, somewhere in the great beyond, because uh, they don't come here. And uh, and every once in a while, you'll you'll see, you know, you will just go to something because you, you know, well, I'm not just going to sit in a cafe and drink a coffee. I'm going to go see a movie and whatever's playing near me in, in the available time slot, and that doesn't always pan out. But I, I'm, I'm finding that uh, my choices have been pretty pretty good this year. Yeah, and it's uh,
0: I, I'm always looking for that film that takes me by surprise, uh, something that really jumps out at me and then winds up on my best-of-the-year list. The last two years... Uh, the film festival has delivered that for me. Uh, last year was The Square, which I believe was the Palme d'Or winner, yeah. uh, the Swedish film, which I thought was funny and dry and ironic and uh, creepy in equal doses. It was really a wonderful picture. The previous year was Green Room, Jeremy Saulnier's film, which I saw and was uh, blown away by. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still looking for that film this year. I've seen a lot of things I've liked a lot, but I'm not sure if I've seen that film maybe possibly it could be Mandy which we'll get to later <laughs> later uh, that actually screens tonight Monday night uh, at uh, at Finn late it's at 10 o'clock uh, so when you're hearing this you might have seen it uh, and I hope you enjoyed it but well, anyway we'll talk about that later we have seen as I said a lot of local stuff. Um, maybe we need to wade into that right now. Uh, the the opening gala film of the festival this year was Tom Fitzgerald's Splinters. This is a film based on a play by Leanne Poole, and uh, it returns Tom to some of the themes first explored in his Premiere his debut film, uh, *The Hanging Garden*, uh, more than twenty years ago. Yeah, twenty-one. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that it,
1: it's, as he told me, it's old enough to drink in the states now.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, and uh, it was great to talk to him. I talked to him about it too. Uh, he he said that uh, I mentioned the film felt in some ways paralleled or in or in the same sort of ballpark as his original film, and he said that the play uh, that Leanne Poole had. Kind of been a little bit inspired by his original film, and then he was touched by what Leanne Poole had written. And so, in other words, they kind of—it's like a two-way street. He's inspiring her, and now she's inspiring him to create this feature. Uh, and I actually talked to her as well, and she hadn't seen the feature yet. No, <laughs> and she was waiting to see it with a crowd, I think, because she was nervous and excited. And uh, and I mean, it was it was lovely to hear from them both and find out how you know
1: how vital they both feel in, about this work. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've known Leanne since, well, you know, since she was uh, a kid really. And, uh, so it's interesting seeing this story that's based on her own kind of young adulthood, uh, you know, her own coming out and then, um, you know, exploring the more fluid aspect of sexuality, uh, which is, is fully presented here. And it, so it's interesting to see it on the big screen and, you know, it fictionalized, it's, it's not a, literal interpretation of what she went through as a kid with her with her own life and her own parents and everything but but there are echoes of it certainly uh, it is you know i guess semi-autobiographical if you want to say that um uh left, i think is the, the the term in literature there you go um but uh, or clay I'm, uh, french <laughs> is not what it should be um but um uh so it's, it's, it's interesting to see it unfold. Uh, and you know that the story's coming from a very real place. Obviously, it's based on a play. Uh, she didn't... Uh, Tom wrote the screenplay based on the play, so she didn't really have uh, uh, any involvement in the film. But I, I, I think it works rather well. Um, you know, Tom's style is, is very kind of luxurious. He spends a lot of time with characters and, in you know, sort of setting moods and things like that. And it's, it's a very lovely film. Shot in the Annapolis Valley... Lots of lots of beautiful vistas. I, I didn't see it on the big screen. I watched a, a, an earlier screening of it. I wish I'd uh, been able to go to the uh, Thursday night. Screening at the Rebecca Cohen would be nice to see a film in there. I think that'd be a great experience. Uh, I've
0: actually seen a couple of things in there because that's where they've had the previous, uh, right, um, you know, premieres. And, you know, it is kind of cool. It's a great, it's comfortable and it's a great big room, yeah. uh, especially since we are still mourning the loss of the Oxford, which is what used to be the place where all this kind of stuff happened. Um, but it actually some, I've had some sound issues with yes, uh, with films really... at the Cohen.
1: Yeah, so. well, it's, a, it's acoustically not meant for films. Uh, oddly enough, i saw saw, uh, I'm getting off track here, but I saw Woodstock. Like When they actually had full-on theatrical uh, screening capabilities in the Cohen, I actually saw a 35 millimeter print of Woodstock wow. when I was like 11 or 12 at the, at, at the Cohen, which is quite the experience. But that was sort of before, that was right when the Dal Film Society was winding down and Wormwoods was kind of gearing up, so... One kind of segued into the other. Uh, back in the day, says the old timer movie goer. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I, I loved uh, uh, Splinters. I, I thought it was full of great performances. Shelly Thompson, who I've seen a lot of <laughs> this weekend. Yeah, seriously. Uh, she's, you know, she's both all around, in front of and behind the camera, uh, in in features and shorts and and, and everything. Uh, she's terrific as the mother. You know, she. It's not the. It's it's a very kind of shaded uh, characterization. You know because. She's already dealt with her daughters coming out. That's, that's in the past. Now it's the fact that her daughter, who came out as uh, gay, now has a boyfriend. And she's not really ready to present that to the family. <laughs> and, of course, everything kind of spills out. Um, and uh, Sophia Banzoff, who was in Party Monster, um, uh, or sorry, Closet Monster, uh, is, is terrific as well. As, as the daughter who comes, has this kind of uh, strange homecoming to her father's funeral and all these families secrets and stories kind of come spilling to the fore and it, it's it's the sort of material that fitzgerald uh, handles really well i thought
0: yeah no i i like the characterizations i particularly like the sense of place and the cinematography the gorgeous choice of the valley in late summer i mean it looks looks lovely it's it's a film that you can luxuriate in in that in that kind of environment and yeah and i think the actors acquit themselves well um I didn't love it as much as cloudburst uh, Tom Fitzgerald's last film which I felt was well it was a sort of a road movie and it was a little more kinetic this is kind of a meandering weekend at the house where characters are kind of coming to terms with their identity and their relationships with other characters and there's of course a, a sense of mourning because one of the act one of the actors one of the one of the characters has passed away the father and so they have to uh, you know deal with that uh, and and the the resolution of what happens to the apple farm uh, because he was running it and you know Hugh Thompson someone else I'm seeing we're seeing a lot of lately <laughs> and he's he's great in his supporting role um, I felt like the lead had more chemistry with her ex-girlfriend than she did with the the boyfriend who is kind of in her present day life and maybe that's kind of the point you know he the guy shows up and he's not welcome and he's not invited and it's clear that there are some issues there and you feel for him but yeah it's just all it's all just kind of uh, uncomfortable and uh yeah I I felt like I felt like I liked some of the I liked some of the performances I liked the mood but I was not necessarily feeling like there the the stakes and the dramatic heft didn't it just sort of
1: meandered a little bit for me yeah I I see that and you know I, I talked to somebody else who felt that it, it it kind of could have been tightened up a little or or that that it could have been more strong narratively. I, I guess maybe I was just in the mood for it. I mean, it is kind of an elegiac story with the 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 morning of the father. There's lots of flashbacks to the to her conversations with her dad when she's trying to figure things out uh, years before. And um, but but I like the sort of assemblage of characters. I, I mean, I, you know, I like Robert Altman films. So I guess <laughs> I guess I, I guess I don't I don't need it to be super tight neat. It it a does, um, it does
0: feel a little bit like that. It's true.
1: Um, you're right. You're you right about her, you know, and she, her scenes, you know, there's only a handful of scenes with, between um, of a and uh, her, of ex-girlfriend played by a uh, Anderson, who is a local actor. Again, I've, been watching her since she was in high school you know when she was in Neptune theater school and all that kind of stuff and and she's terrific on stage it'd be nice to see her get something a little more expansive in in a film project but the the few moments she has on on screen here are terrific so I'm hoping that she gets a little more attention as well but uh I just you know I like the character interactions I thought the humor was well chosen I mean it's it's not a comedy by any stretch but there are some 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 really funny moments the the proposal that happens in the film, I thought was, you know, pretty pretty. I mean, that's probably the funniest thing that happens in the film. Yeah, but, yeah, but it, it is. It's know, great. It comes. It, I liked how that was handled. Uh, not quite slapstick, but it's, it's well, very it's funny. It's the, maybe the worst timed proposal in cinema yes, history. Yes, exactly. And I'm, that's all <laughs> we'll say about that. Uh, and, and of course, the, the, the use of music throughout. Stuart Legere, who was in the original production as the boyfriend, appears here as like a family friend who's just that guy with the guitars at every family gathering. But, you know, he, his music is featured throughout the film to, to a very good effect as well. So there's there's lots of elements there that I loved and and I thought it held together pretty well. Uh also have noticed his first film with an all Atlantic cast. Yeah, that's I pretty was, awesome. It was pretty great. I mean, it was obviously made for perhaps a lower budget than some of his other films, so, you know, you're not going to get an Olympia de Caucus <laughs> or a, a Brenda Frickert uh for what they made this movie with, but I, but I think uh, by keeping it uh, local, I think it, it probably makes it more effective in a lot of ways. And I guess, you know, it, the day after the premiere, he's on set for his next film yeah. with uh, Jackie Weaver. Yeah, so. Stage Mother, which
0: which uh, has Halifax passing for uh, San Francisco. Oh, jeez. Well, we got some hills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got hills, we got old Victorians. Uh, he said he might go to San Francisco for a few days to shoot some establishing shots because... You can't turn the bridge here orange, so uh, yeah. So I mean, well, there you yeah, go. Sure, you
1: can in a coloring suite.
0: <laughs> and we used to have cable cars. Maybe we can bring those back. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so there you go. That splinters also has uh, another film. Atlantic Film has played, uh, and it was a gala presentation on Friday night. Was an audience of chairs. This is Deanne Foley's new drama. Uh, from the Joan Clark novel. It's shot in Newfoundland. I think the novel was set in Cape Breton, but uh, definitely Newfoundland. And it's a story, and I thought quite a touching story and sometimes frightening, an honest portrait of a woman's struggle with mental illness. Um, and it stars Carolina Bartzak, who is a concert pianist named Mora, spending the summer at a remote cottage with her two daughters. She's obsessive, she's distracted, But she seems to love her kids and is holding it well enough together until one afternoon she does something that genuinely endangers the kids. And it becomes clear that she may not be uh, healthy to be around and uh, she may need some help. And she... um I found her. I found this is a film where the lead really carried it. I thought she was really magnetic. Uh, this actor who I wasn't familiar with, though, apparently she was in X Men Apocalypse. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, like I thought she mutant, I y- Yeah, yeah. I thought she was really good, and I thought that uh, you know the conclusion, the tonally, it's funny. The film goes from this sort of examination of her uh, her her mental state. It's the pacing's a little odd because she gets taken away for help about midway through the story. And then you know, six months later, she gets out, and there's no there's no time spent with her as she gets the help that she needs. I felt that was uh, that was odd, and there were moments where we we shoot forward in time sort of abruptly. Uh, but but the ending was a real tearjerker in a way that I felt kind of was earned, and so I I uh, I, I, th- I quite liked the film.
1: Yeah, I I, I felt like uh, I, I liked the film a lot with some reservation. I, I feel like maybe our positions like. I feel about this the way you felt about splinters. But, but uh, the, yeah, some of the leaps in the story, I don't know if they're if those were there originally or it was made for just economy of, of storytelling, but I, I felt like there were maybe some scenes missing that could have been in there. Um, but, but I guess, you know, the focus is on Sophia, and you kind of have to take some things... Uh, for granted along the way that she is, you know, she does want to get treatment. She does want to get help. She does want to see her kids again, and that—that uh, that is kind of the core of the film. It's very Stella Dallas. I don't know if you've ever seen any iteration of the movie Stella Dallas, but it, it's—you uh, know—in the the sound version because there's I think two or three versions of it. Um, you know, Barbara Stanwyck gives up everything for her daughter, and it ends with her standing outside the church you know watching her daughter get married through a window or something like that you know and, and it's raining and she's crying and 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 so you know i i was having a big flashback to that and i'm sure it's it's entirely intentional but here uh, she gets a resolution that Stella Dallas doesn't get uh spoiler alert uh-huh. uh if you're watching uh uh you know 80-year-old movies that uh, you haven't seen before. but um. <laughs> I don't know if we even need to
0: say spoiler alert on this podcast uh, No, prob- probably not. I mean, we, we do occasionally venture into some plot points, but we talk about old movies so much yeah. that really, if you haven't seen them, then,
1: you know, uh, yeah, what, what can you do? Well, with- you know, Stella Dallas, it, it ends with Barbara Stanwyck sort of walking away alone. Feeling vindicated because you know her sacrifices paid off in the end for her daughter's happiness, if not for her own. But but you know the, I think an audience of chairs is a little you know that that just doesn't seem right mm-hmm. in this day and age. Uh, and an audience of chairs is a little more satisfactory uh, in its resolution. Uh, and and yeah, um, Carolina Bartzak is is terrific. I I you know I didn't buy her as a Newfoundlander. Uh, at any point in the course of the film, but that's you know that's I guess some suspension of disbelief.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure her accent wasn't necessarily reflective of the other folks who she was around. Uh, which yeah, that's which I though. I, I, then I started to wonder: Well, did she grow up there? Did she grow up elsewhere? It's a little unclear.
1: That's it, and you know, and you know, she's obviously a very gifted classical pianist. Early on, before her her um, you know mental uh, condition takes a, takes a downturn. And so, you know, she probably went away for school. I mean, Memorial has a music program in Newfoundland, but she probably went away for school and, you know, lots of people leave the Island and, and lose their accent and that sort of thing. So I, you know, I did a little bit of mental gymnastics and it was fine. Uh, you know, cause like, you know, she's living in kind of an outporty or not outport, but like a small village where, you know, the, the further you get from St. John's, the stronger the accents become. But, um, you know, that's, you know, the, you have to kind of <laughs> allow for some of these things uh, over the course of a film. But, you know, and I liked her relationship with uh, the trucker that she meets, I, I think, I can't remember if that's Gord Rand or I can't remember the name of the actor, but he's he's very effective as this man she meets along the way. And, and Yeah, I think that's
0: his act, that actor's name. Yeah.
1: A- accepts her for, for what she is and, and uh, learns to cope with her problems to to a pretty wide degree. And, uh, you know, overall, I, I enjoyed the film and... and you know, could forgive some of its lapses along the way, which are fairly minor in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the big features this year, as with every year at FIN, is the, uh, the preponderance of documentaries. Uh, the uh, advances in filmmaking uh, technology uh, allow, you know, in terms of being able to edit on the fly and shoot with lighter, more powerful cameras digitally, uh, make documentaries on, you know, maybe not easy to fund, but certainly easier to to budget and uh, and make um, there's a lot more power in the filmmakers hands these days uh for documentaries than you know certainly uh in the days of film and and uh and and uh, there's also more outlets for them so we're seeing more of them and uh that doesn't the fact that there are more of them doesn't make them any less compelling and there's some terrific ones at uh, this year's Atlantic Film Festival and uh one of the uh one of the ones that's getting a lot of attention uh, and for good reason is Love Scott the uh, the story of Scott Jones, uh, who was uh, assaulted, uh, I guess five years ago now, uh, outside of a club in New Glasgow, and uh, was left uh, permanently uh, injured. He's in a wheelchair, and, and the film's about his uh, his fight to recover, but also just about you know reclaiming his identity um, and this position that you know he became a kind of a, a champion of justice against hate crimes uh, and uh, against fighting homophobia and also, uh, you know, as a voice for the disabled as well. He, you know, he's, he was a, a choir director. He loved music. He, he, he was, uh, you know, a guy who people loved. And, and then he got put in this position and the film kind of deals with what it's like to suddenly be thrust into the spotlight. Due to this tragedy that befell him, and it's made by his close friend uh, Laura Marie Wayne, so it's a, it's got a very personal approach. It's uh, you know, and her style of filmmaking is, is very poetic. It's it's filled with beautiful imagery. She's not interested in telling a point A to point Z kind of story, uh, and uh, and I I quite like the film. It it, it um, you know it it tries to focus more on his. Uh, His triumphs in the wake of this tragedy, more than than dwelling on the accident, uh, sorry, the incident, the assault, and uh, you know, I I like that approach to the story. I've certainly seen a lot of stories about you know personal struggle and overcoming the odds and that kind of thing, and this isn't really that kind of story. I mean, that's an element of it, but there's more going on here in terms of really um, getting to know. Scott and and I think when I talk to Laura, you know, like really get into the heart of of this man and, and what he's gone through.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the intimacy here is astounding. Of course, being that she, the filmmaker is such a close friend with the subject, it allowed for that kind of intimacy. But I really appreciated that this is a film with sort of a double-barreled intent. There is the, the tale of someone trying to come to terms with their life being changed by this and how his activism was was uh, ignited by this experience and his need to make change in the world and, and taking on that that sort of mission. And also, there is the political undertones, which is that, uh, you know, the, the, the person who was charged and eventually convicted for this crime is, is gone to jail for attempted murder for 10 years. But uh, hate crimes were never something that was uh, dealt with or discussed as part of the prosecution. And uh, Scott and Laura, I believe, they both believe that that is a mistake and that in cases like this, the f- it was Scott's uh, being an out gay man uh, that made him a target. And uh, they believe that uh, the legislation isn't there. The legislatures and the justice system isn't doing enough to prosecute these kinds of cases because uh, you know and they 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 include some statistics about that across Canada uh, how few of these cases actually get prosecuted. So uh, it is uh, it's interesting that that is all part of this as well. I really thought they did a successful job in creating this sort of sad and heartfelt portrait of a man, but also including this uh, these elements that make you think when you walk out of there uh, of of how our system works and whether or not this is something that just keeps happening without proper justice being done.
1: Yeah. Scott's got a long list of people that he feels, and it's hard to argue with that, that that, that need to see this film. I mean, from every, you know, from, from kids, school kids at an impressionable age who are, you know, might be getting negative, uh, you know, negative uh, reinforcement about how to treat people who are, you know, whose sexuality is different than their own to the highest, Corridors of power—the the lawmakers, and then the law enforcers, and uh, the lawyers, and, and 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 you know people are supposed to prosecute these crimes. That, I mean, there are laws against these things, and they're just and they're kind of being ignored. And it's it's like, you know, if you know, would would Scott have been attacked if, if he hadn't if he wasn't gay? Probably not. You know, so that's why these laws exist. And then the film is is it makes. An incredibly powerful point about it, without being strident about it. I think it does has an amazing balance between yeah. telling Scott's story in, in a in a very thoughtful and reflective way, but also driving point home the point that uh, that you know this film wouldn't have been necessary if these uh, laws were more stridently uh, enforced and uh, you know also considered by the public at large. So it's it's kind of this two pronged thing of public awareness of of what the, the damage of of hate can be and also, you know, why that damage could be reduced if it was prosecuted more uh, more aggressively. So, um, but it's, you know, the the, the way it and it's 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 not what is it it's just over an hour I think or maybe no it's even. a little longer I am actually I'm not sure how how long it is I've but it, oh no it, you're right it, it is like a, like an hour and fifteen minutes yeah. or so and it, it but it, it wraps up a lot into into one package mm-hmm. and, and uh, the I thought the balance was extremely well well handled
0: yeah and it's gorgeous also to look at this is something Laura Marie Wayne has a real visual sense she uses a lot of exterior shooting where with her and Scott going out into Nova Scotia and visiting the places that he used to love to go to when he was more able-bodied and uh, it, it's and it's sad and moving but also there's a sort of autumnal kind of quality to the film which was lovely to look at and there's a whole story around how they got the soundtrack. Sigur oh, yes. Ross does the soundtrack and uh, you know they were listening, they were big fans of, of the Icelandic, moody ethereal uh, band and would listen to the music a lot when they were together and she sort of imagined the film scored to it but she was like oh we're never going to get them and then she <laughs> (laughs) was traveling, I guess, down in Costa Rica and she said she had a a dream of... of, of like they really wanted it they really wanted it and Scott was like we gotta get it somehow and they're trying to figure out how to do that and then she had a dream we have to ask and so she called up the producer in Montreal uh, Annette Clark I believe and uh, who had a connection with the band through their manager sent them and they sent an email uh, inquiry with a little clip from the film and apparently it was the next day yeah. they heard back and Sigurd Ross was like we love this idea we'll do whatever we can to have our music be on the soundtrack to this film I mean what an amazing opportunity and what a great way! And, and of course, it makes it provides a sort of—I'm hesitant to use the word—but a gravitas to the proceedings, which is a, a soulfulness that makes this far uh, different than your, you, you know, a very different kind of a story.
1: Yeah, it's it's it just it raises it to a whole other level in, in so many ways, and, and and it's it's not even like Sigur Ross songs. It's kind of like the backing tracks for the songs, which Sigur Ross's own engineer apparently helped tailor. The, the instrumental tracks for some of the scenes in the film. And uh, so you know, it's not just a matter of them just letting, oh, yeah, you can use our music. It's like, you know, well, we're going to, you know, help make our music fit your film. Uh, and uh, the results are, are terrific. Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of uh,
0: documentaries, local documentaries with a uh, strong political storytelling element, uh, The Girls of Maru is Andrea Dorfman's film. Uh, Andrea, of course, spent the summer shooting a new comedy feature here in Halifax, Spinster, which is due next year. But this is something else entirely, something she's been working on since 2010. Yeah. Uh, Going to Kenya and uh, documenting the efforts to improve the lives of women and children who've been victims of sexual assault. It's a really powerful work narrated by Dorfman herself and detailing multiple incidents of children who are attacked by men who behave without fear of prosecution. Uh, And the Kenyan judicial system is no threat uh, because lawmen don't want to, they don't feel any responsibility to do anything. Um, And she uses animation to help illustrate these stories. You know, she's very, very careful to preserve the anonymity of these kids when she shoots actual footage of the kids being taken care of in schools and by social workers, but uh, she animates their stories in a way that's that's very humanistic and very down-to-earth, and it, it softens and sweetens what otherwise would, is really, really tough material. And I found it was a really, for such a heavy subject, it's a really hopeful film, and I was really glad to see it. I think it's kind of essential. It's
1: really, really well done. It's, it's an amazing film. Uh, it, it's really beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Uh, there's so many stories. I mean, every story in this movie is heartbreaking, of course, but the, the, there's one where the, the father of one of the girls who is, is uh, defiled is the term that they use in law in Kenya, in, yeah, in, the, in the actual laws against uh, raping children. The, the word they use is defiling. Uh, which is, just seems biblical or something. like It just seems like something from another century. Um, and uh, he, the father goes to the police, and he's blind, and the police tell him that, you know, you want this guy brought to justice, fine, you arrest him. And they give him the warrant, and here, you serve this arrest warrant. And it, it, your brain just cannot process that information. Yeah. Like, how could humans do this to another... Human, and, and, and they and, demand money for
0: gasoline because they say, oh, we can't yes, prosecute just, these people. You pay us so that we can afford to fill the gas tanks of our cars so that we can go out. And, of course, other crimes like thievery, the, the cops get right in the cars and drive away. Like they're just using – trying to find excuses not to do
1: anything. Oh, yeah. And, and even in the legal system, you know, the prosecution loses valuable documents. Oh, we misplaced them. We'll have to have a, a mistrial or you know postpone the trial. Or whatever, and uh, you know, it's just this—the uh, women who are fighting for the justice, and, and the men who are fighting for justice for these girls—the uh, uphill climb they have is—I mean, like as you say, <laughs> this film was was close to a decade in the making, and uh, you know, and and some of the people involved suffer their own tragedies through, over the course of the film, uh, and you know, you, you just, uh, you really feel for the, for this cause. And it's just, it's just one small corner of a whole continent and, uh, and of the world. And you just wonder like how many Marus are, are out there, uh-huh. you know, how many battles need to be fought before we get to a place of common human decency. And, and, and Andrea, like her voice is so calming. Like she tells, you know, so there's, you know, there's no outrage in her voice. You know, she kind of walks you through what's happening, uh, with, uh, with the group that's coming together for the, for the young women and also, you know, tells the girls sort of individual stories uh, with beautiful animation to, you know, depict uh, some of these events. And uh, it's, it kind of softens the blow because it is so outrageous that, that these things happen. Um, And yet it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, wonderfully made, you know, the, the animations and each, animated segment is done in a different style one is kind of pegboard animation and then there's stop motion and then there's the kind of hand-drawn style that she used in um uh you know her movie Flawed yeah and Flawed heartbeat um and uh it's you know it just carries you through this film is riveting and beautiful and distressing and heartbreaking and so many things uh and uh yeah this is you know obviously probably the best uh, doc that I've seen uh, on
0: the weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been a lot of them. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to The Song and the Sorrow, which is the NFB documentary about uh, PEI musician Catherine McClellan and her father, the legendary Gene McClellan. Uh, It's about his talent and his depression and event, his eventual suicide and how Catherine, who was a teenager at the time of his death, has tried to make peace with all of it. Uh, we see a lot of Gene's friends and collaborators, including Lenny Gallant, Ron Hines, and indeed Anne Murray, uh, both footage of her performing with Gene back in the 70s and also uh, current day interviews. Uh, and I think the film provides a, a lovely, intimate look at the man and the artist, and very much about Catherine's courage. Um, she is remarkable in how she shares her own struggles with with depression, uh, and uh, and as well as so upfront about the details of her father's illness. Uh, and and eventually, she has allowed herself to interact with his art, and and. Uh, it, Pay tribute to his work by recording a number of his songs and playing uh, tribute, sort of a tribute show to him in, in Charlottetown. She has, I think, an annual now gig where she plays a number of his songs, and people really love that. Uh, it's a sadly beautiful story. It's uh, I found it quite moving.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, on any number, I mean, I I know Catherine, so you know, hearing her be so candid about her father's passing. I mean, I've talked to her about it, but uh, you know, certainly not in the kind of detail that we get here and. Uh, and I actually met Gene McClellan when I was a kid. No uh, kidding. Him, yeah, he was he uh, he was performing at one of these kind of weekend hootenannies at my uncle's place in North Rustico. He used to he, he had a resort where uh, there was like a golf course and campgrounds and cabins and a little motel and a weird little curiosity museum kind of thing. And and uh, on Sundays, of course, I mean Charlottetown was one of the driest of kind of provinces where like you couldn't serve any alcohol on Sundays and a lot of places were closed on Sundays and that kind of thing. So on Sundays he he had a little stage erected and people like John Allen Cameron would come uh, once the Irish Rovers showed up because it was the only show happening on, on a Sunday in in PEI, I guess. And, 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 uh, my, my uncle Jack, who's still around, he's, he's in his nineties at this point, but he's, he's still around living in Moncton. But, um, he, uh, you know, uh, he just, he loved musicians and he was always making friends with musicians. I mean, he, you know, when he, w- when it wasn't the summer, he was a chocolate salesman, you know, when he wasn't running this resort, jumping jacks in, in Rustico PEI. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we'd go there for, you know, a week or so in this every summer and eventually I'd meet somebody, some musicians would, would turn up. And I remember meeting Gene when I was pretty young. I was, you know, like, you know, seven or eight or something like that and, you know, the big you know, tall guy with the eye patch and right, kind, sure. of, kind of intimidating looking guy. But, but you know, when he sang, it was just so beautiful. And, uh, he he was really, a kind of a, an epic kind of songwriter who, you know, was, uh, he had two big hits in snowbird, which, you know, of course, Anne Murray's version is one that everyone knows. And then his own, put your hand in the hand. And, and, but there are all these other songs that maybe weren't hits on those, ki- that kind of scale. And, and, and I think he kind of gets judged for that early success, but, uh, you know he was certainly a gifted and, and unique songwriter for his time and unfortunately his records are not the easiest to find these days but uh but hearing that story told in such an intimate and uh you know direct way and hearing people's stories about gene and filling in some of the gaps he was a very private guy he didn't talk about himself a whole lot i mean they've, they've done a great job in finding some some vintage interviews and clips and things for this film but you know there's still big parts of the puzzle that are even with this film and with the research and the stuff that's been written about him there's still you know, big chunks of his life that he kind of kept to himself. That, you know, nobody will ever know the answer. And so, that that you know, that's part of the sorrow as well. Apart from his passing and so on, there, there's also kind of a mystery there as to uh, you know what drove him, what uh, you know, what. Uh, what led him to be creative and then what led him to leave it all behind. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a fascinating
0: documentary. And I think people will get a chance to see it. Hopefully again, I'm sure this is something that's going to reair. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, and, uh, it'll and be turn elsewhere. up
1: probably on CBC at some point. I mean, probably. it's designed to kind of fill an hour time slot. So I think it's the odds of catching it on television are pretty good. Um,
0: I want to say a couple of shout outs to other music related documentaries. Uh, Bad Reputation I saw last night. It's the Joan Jett doc. It's very comprehensive about his her work, uh, not only as a musician, but also as an activist. She's been involved and in supporting other artists a lot more than I knew. Yeah. Um, and she's, yeah, an amazing force of nature. Uh, and there's some great testimonials from people like Debbie Harry, Kristen Stewart, and Miley Cyrus. Uh, and a lot of great footage of, of uh, Joan Jett performing live. Also, really really liked a film called Carmine Street Guitars. This is Ron Mann's new film. Of course, he's a master of the subculture, the the Toronto documentarian. This is about uh, a New York uh, Greenwich Village guitar maker, a luthier, Rick Kelly, and how he runs his business and how many amazing musicians come through his shop, it was a personal interest to me because I know one of my favorite musicians, um, American singer-songwriter-guitarist Chris Whitley got his start, maybe bought his first guitar in this shop. So uh, we see a lot of others, uh, Kirk Douglas from The Roots, uh, Nels Klein from Wilco, Mark Rebo, Jim Jarmusch. It's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and on and on. And on and on, yeah. It's, it's, uh, Carmine Street Guitars is a lovely uh, look at a, at a, a talented craftsperson person, uh, you saw a film I did not see, and that's Love
1: Gilda. Uh, did you like it? I, I really did like it. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was always a fan of Gilda Radner. She's probably my f- favorite of the not ready for primetime players from the original Saturday Night Live. But you know, she has an interesting history before she even landed on on that show, working with National Lampoon and being in this famous production of Godspell that sort of united her with Marty. Uh, Marty Short, you know, that was one of his first big uh, professional gigs. And um, Paul Schaefer, who went on to become David Letterman's band leader, was also the musical director of that show. There's a lot of, uh, and a lot of other well known names, um, Canadian and otherwise, uh, involved in that show. She was not Canadian. She's actually from Detroit, but she wound up going to Toronto. Um, She met a sculptor and and decided she was going to move to Toronto with a Canadian sculptor, move to Toronto with him and be a housewife. But that didn't work out because she wanted to get back on stage and wound up in Second City and then going to New York. Uh, and uh, and the rest is history. But of course, uh, you know, late in life, or, well, sadly, she didn't live to be very old, but, you know, she developed ovarian cancer. And uh, that became her focus, both to fight the disease and also speak out for, for women with cancer uh, in a way that had had not been in the spotlight uh, at that time. So it, it's an interesting arc for this woman who's incredibly funny, incredibly gifted, but had, um, you know, had, had a lot of battles struggles with an eating disorder and her self image. And, and there was a lot of self doubt, even though she was probably the, you know, the funniest person you could ever meet and, and most talented. You know, there's some clips from her one woman show on Broadway, which are, you know, there was a film made of that, which I'd love to see again. Um, and, uh, you know, very touching. And I lost a friend to ovarian cancer not too long ago. So, I, you know, I was fairly emotionally invested in this film. And uh, and also just my love of Gilda Radner's artistry. Uh, it's, there's nothing unique in the way that the story is told. It is, as I mentioned, an A to Z kind of biography, I suppose. Uh, you know, you get the old home movies and people talking about how much they loved working with her and what made her special and then, you know, talking about her struggle. So... I, you know, I'm guessing it's, or I guess it's fairly uh, traditional in the style that the film is told, but just being able to experience her artistry and then, and then uh, her, her, what she went through uh, in, in her final years uh, was, was fairly moving. I I said something, I think I tweeted that, you know, I hadn't laughed and cried on equal levels so much in a film for quite some time. Uh, you know, it, it feels like it was probably, I mean, it was co-produced by CNN and it'll probably air there. Um, you might want to keep an eye out for that um, in listings or, you know, TV blogs or whatever. But, um, so I think maybe it had to remain kind of conventional in the way it tells the story. But uh, but they, they use a lot of her own words. There's, you know, she did an audio book for one of her uh, autobiographies and they use a lot of uh, clips from that. So, I, I felt that it, it did kind of draw you into her life and into her, her private world to a, a greater degree than I had been up to that time. So another local film that, uh, that I saw, did you see as well, Hopeless uh, Romantic? I didn't get to it. Uh, I wanted to see it. I certainly heard a lot about it when it was in production. And uh, there were a lot of talented people working on it uh, here and in other parts of the region, but uh, I didn't get to that screening, and uh, I have a feeling I'll get another chance to see it done. Yeah, let's hope it gets a release. It's a
0: low-budget anthology feature, romantic comedy, and I, you know, thinking about, there are some classic anthology films out there, but they aren't regularly made. They're difficult to make. They're not generally all that well received. Uh, So I was a little cautious coming into this, even though I, I was really keeping my fingers crossed for success. And I was pleasantly surprised at how the continuity of the stories really worked. There's the spine of the story. It's set at a wedding where a woman has had a bad experience or an experience with a with a man who she runs into at the wedding uh, and he is, uh, she's had kind of an awkward history with him. And, uh, and then she winds up talking to a lot of other women who are guests at the wedding uh, about their sort of romantic misadventures, so that's the common thread here. Uh, and I gather it was written sort of siloed. Uh, the different stories were written by the directors and then all thrown together. The, uh, the you know and, and structured like almost like a TV show where the crew and the DP Jeff Wheaton were were the constant parts of the story. And then the writer-directors came in to shoot uh, for a few days each. Um, Deanne Foley, who we mentioned, uh, whose feature film An Audience of Chairs is at the festival this year. Ruth Lawrence, Latonia Hardery, Martine Blue, and Haligonians Megan Wenberg and Stephanie Klattenberg uh, were the filmmakers, uh, all women, and uh, I really love the film in, in ways that sort of surprise me. I, I mean, it's, it's clearly low budget and there are some restrictions that come with that, you know. But in terms of the writing, I thought it really sparkled in the performances. The casting was all bang on. And, uh, yeah, it's a really fun movie. I would say uh, highlight Susan Kent, especially sharp. She's a, oh, she great. plays a, a character who's at the, the wedding and she's drunk. And then she tells a story about how she just recently divorced from her husband and they're at an adult swimming class. And, uh, and then he's there. And it's all just very uncomfortable uh, and, but very funny. And uh, yeah, so that was a highlight. Uh, it The script is by Emily Bridger, Ian McLeod and Jay Dahl. And it's, uh, it, that was the part of the film I liked the most. So yeah, no, hopefully it'll get a, a release and everyone, more people will get a chance to see that. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm kicking myself for not getting to it. You know, as with any film festival, you kind of pick your battles, I guess. And, yeah. As to what you're going to go see. And uh and this one I figured, well, this one I'll probably get a chance to, to catch at some point, hopefully sooner than later. And I certainly love the work of the, the women involved and, and the, the people involved. I love this cast. Uh, you know, certainly people like like Francine DeSchepper, who I also saw in a great uh, short film directed by Shelley Thompson called Duck, Duck, Goose. She was amazing in that. Uh, uh, Amy Groening, who's also in Halloween Party, which we're going to talk about shortly. She's pretty fantastic. She's great in that film. Just has this very... Uh, Engaging personality, uh, and Susan Kent, I love on uh, this Hour is twenty-two minutes, and uh, you know, she's she's certainly got a big personality that comes comes right through a camera. Yeah, so, for I, sure. yeah, I'd like, I, and I've you know, I've often thought I'd like to see her in more stuff, uh, more sort of expansive stuff and clearly this is a good role for her so uh, yeah definitely try and catch this as soon as I can
0: yeah it's uh, I uh well you know it's the chances of I think I think a chance are reasonably good it'll get some kind of release and we'll keep my I'll keep my fingers crossed on that front uh, another local film is The Halloween Party uh, directed and written speaking of <laughs> uh, yes and uh, written by Jay Dahl who of course produced Hopeless Romantic and co-wrote it uh, so Saturday Night was a big Doll fest. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the Valley of the Doll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it was and the Halloween party did not disappoint. It's uh, it's a horror movie that's also very much a, a comedy. He manages to to like juggle the tonal tonally. he's it, sort of making fun of horror movies and horror movie tropes while also being genuinely creepy in places. And he has this almost what I now having seen this and having seen There Are Monsters, I'm seeing a certain kind of uh, visual effect that Dahl does really well, because he's also doing a lot of that himself, uh, sort of a, that, that elicits a jump scare very effectively. Uh, and it makes your skin crawl. So uh, um, yeah, it's a story basically about a, uh, a meme that catches on at a local college. And uh, you have to, you, it, it presents a countdown, you have to Say what your deepest fear is, and if you don't disclose the fear, it'll come true and kill you. Uh but, you see a scary witch. A scary witch, yeah. <laughs> which um, is not scary. Not yeah. at all. But uh, it's funny, you know, this, this kind of this sort of cheesy video uh, online meme, which, of course, we've seen – we've all seen this kind of thing before, is tied into this really well-thought-out backstory about – um uh, this this the uh, the residence where this um, university is being a former hospital and that it's haunted by these children who were affected by a chemical spill and that uh, they were all deformed and, and uh, mistreated and, and eventually they all sort of went insane uh, and wanted revenge on the people who had kept them locked in and in these, these spaces. And that's how these students are, these students are kind of coming to grips with all of this. Uh, and I really liked that aspect of it. It was, it had a, you know, sort of a medieval creepiness to it that, uh, Lent weight to all the rest of the story. Uh, Amy Groening, you mentioned, she's the lead. She's great, and she is ably assisted by T. Thomason, uh, and uh, who is plays a computer nerd who is both terrified but also uh, a really, really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. Know. Their
1: their chemistry is amazing. Like, <laughs> you know this, this you know the the. I mean, you know, it's always it's always fun when like. The the attractive woman and the nerdy guy kind of team up, and there's a, you know you can have some some fun with that kind of pairing off, but but it really does work really well. They they really make the most of their characters, and and she's not your typical. Uh, you know, attractive college girl and he's not your typical computer nerd. So I, I really enjoyed their chemistry. Yeah. And, uh, the, and, the, and the cracks co- they take against the bros oh, yeah. on campus the fr- are the, so funny. The, the frat boys really come under the, the knife in this film to, to a great <laughs> yeah. degree. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, I got to visit the set of this film uh, when they were making it and just see some of the, how some of the scenes came together, like when they're being attacked in a car and so on. And, and wondering how this was all going to fit together. Cause I was just seeing a, a little fraction of it on, on one day on the set, but uh, it, it's amazing how, you know, that they've created this fictional college out of the campuses of Smew and Kings and, and the, the, the old Ben's bakery factory <laughs> off Quinpool road. And, and, uh, it, you know, certainly, certainly, it'll, uh, you know, if you're from Halifax, it'll be a lot of fun to watch just for the geography of it. But, but, uh, th- you know, they really top loaded it between the, the sort of cyber thriller aspect of it. Plus this kind of weird body horror aspect to it, uh, you know, it sounds like it might be a little top heavy, but it isn't. It it, it zips along uh, at this terrific pace, and it's you know it's a shame that because it, I think it was like you know they were filming this like two years ago, so you know I'm glad it's finally done. And even then, it's not really finally done. <laughs> Jay Doll said there's like mean like might there's a scene he might put back into it, and there's some some credit things he wants to. Fix up, and you know, there's a little bit more work to be done, but I think what we saw was mostly complete and pretty, pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I
0: look forward to seeing where this film goes because I think it could uh, catch a lot of people by surprise in those, uh, you know, fest- genre festivals, or or even amongst hardcore horror aficionados might get a kick out of this. Um, now, you also saw a film which I think is a horror because I actually didn't see it from Newfoundland called G.
1: Condon's Incredible Violence. Uh, do you want to you want to say a few things <laughs> well, about that, Stephen? Yeah, the um, I wasn't one hundred percent sure what I was going to be in for when I went to see the, the full title is G. Patrick Condon's Incredible Violence, and in fact, it's directed by G. Patrick Condon, who uh, but who's played who's a real person, but he's played here by an actor uh, and who's uh, basically squandered the uh, the money that he had raised to make a low budget feature. Um, and it, it wasn't telefilm. It was from some dubious source that are, are going to come looking for uh, either a film or or his blood. Basically, <laughs> like he's, he's somehow the money he put it in his bank account and it just kind of dwindled away. And now he's like trying to figure out what to do. Like, how do I scramble and get this feature put together? And so it it you know it starts off like you feel like it's a comedy about this guy who's going to be just scrambling to put together a low budget horror film. He jokes he's talking to a a bartender about. You know, I was like, the bartender's like trying to offer suggestions. Like, well, you know, can't you just get people to volunteer and offer them something after the fact? And he's like, well, sure, actors. Actors will do anything but crew? Are you kidding? <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, and uh, and it's it's kind of barrels along like, you know, and we also sort of meet some of the potential actors who are going to be in this film um, along the way. But but it kind of just jumps to him getting this, uh, he gets this house in the country, is remote, farmhouse in a forest in newfoundland somewhere and uh you know he's immediately bolting up um spy cams and he's and so you get the impression he's gonna do like a low budget uh paranormal activity kind of uh found footage kind of film you know like really do it on the cheap you know no crew just a bunch of spy cams and he'll edit the footage together as best as he can and hopefully get some return on his investment but it takes a very weird strange turn like this guy um this director Goes off the deep end fairly quickly, and basically the actors all show up on location. There's there are dot matrix printers in each room, Uh, and while the director is kind of sequestered up in the attic, they never meet him. At least uh, they hope they never meet him, because when he does take a trip down from the attic, it's not pretty. But um, basically the actors are getting these script pages, uh, and they do what the uh, what these mysterious uh, pages tell them to do. But then it turns out not everybody is getting the same pages, and this uh you know they kind of know they're going to be in a horror film obviously because the film within the film that's being made is called incredible violence uh but things really spiral out of control in a big way it's it's super violent and uh you know and and you know it, it does kind of adhere to the the sort of final girl kind of uh, aspect of horror films but it's uh it's it's interestingly meta without being too eye winkingly meta. I guess <laughs> if I want to put it that way, it, it was a really unique experience, and I I really enjoyed it. The, the cast is really strong. Uh, you know, it's very small. Most of the movie is set in this one house, as this kind of horror unfolds. You know, the male actor kind of starts to you know because you know there's always that thing about this relationship between you know a director and their lead. Uh, you know, like sometimes the like you think of like. Kenneth Branagh in a Woody Allen film and he starts to channel Woody Allen Sure. Well, unfortunately the lead man in in this uh, movie that's being made starts to channel the director and it's not good mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not that's not even though they haven't met you know just through these script pages and the, the general ambiance uh, uh, you know he, he just they it starts to become the mirror image of the madman upstairs, and uh, it's it's a unique concept and really really well executed. Very good. All right. Well, uh, I want to say
0: a few things as well about Mandy, and it is a uh, has to be speaking of bonkers pictures this has to be one of the most bonkers revenge exploitation pictures of the year uh and that is saying something in a year that also features revenge um uh, <laughs> i'm sold if I'm you've seen tonight. that <laughs> um is directed by panos cosmatis who directed beyond the black rainbow he's the son of the cosmatis i think who made like cobra cobra yeah yeah <laughs> well um,
1: there's a good progeny. yeah
0: so uh mandy is one of those films that has that animated van art look about it. Every every scene is like art directed to within an inch of its life, like a collection of... uh uh, new wave of British heavy metal album covers um, come to life with skies on fire and an enormous chainsaw. And of course, it stars Nicolas Cage as a logger and his girlfriend, Mandy, played by the amazing Andrea Riseborough. She's uh, incredible. Um, she plays an illustrator. And they, of course, there are religious cultists, as there are always in the woods. And uh, they don't like them or they take they abduct uh, Mandy. And then they they operate they have like they're friends with LSD powered demon bikers, the religious cultists. So the demon bikers show up and do a lot of
1: terrible things. I feel like I should be sticking my fingers in my ear and going, la, 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 I can't hear you because I, <laughs> I, I, I want to see this as cold. I'm going to it tonight at 10 o'clock. If All I right. I won't and, say
0: anymore. I won't say anymore, but, but I, I will I'm say, definitely stoked for it. Uh, Johan Johansson, the Icelandic composer who has sadly passed oh. away, he does yeah. incredible work here in, in the soundtrack. Cage is very committed, and Riseborough. She's never making dull choices with her career. She's always choosing really interesting work, and she is so good here. Um, I would say the only thing about the film – well, you know what? I'm not going to say any more. You go see it, and we'll talk again, Stephen.
1: (laughs) Well, that wraps up our look – uh, at, uh, as much as we could cram into an hour of uh, Finn the 2018 edition of the Atlantic International Film Festival uh, certainly uh, lots to see if you're hearing this on Tuesday night or, or have downloaded it hopefully it uh, you get a chance to, to hear the show before the last couple of days anyway um, Wednesday night Sharkwater Extinction is playing the sequel to the successful documentary about the perils uh, faced by uh, sharks as a, as a dwindling species at sea. Uh, Rob Stewart uh, literally gave his life making this documentary. He has some Halifax ties. Um, I believe he went to school here and there's some, uh, some of the uh, experts that he consulted uh, work here in Halifax. Uh, and it, it's worth seeing, uh, you know, to see that the the, the fight to save the sharks uh, has not uh, ended. And of course, uh, if you get a chance, there's some I think encore screenings of maybe some of the Atlantic shorts. You should really get out and see those and see what uh, some of the fresh, uh, newer talent is coming up with. And that wraps up.
0: Lens Me Your Ears, our film festival special. Uh, um, if you're hearing this on uh, Apple Podcasts, please give us a good review and subscribe and uh, give us love there. We'd really appreciate that. If you'd like to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, and uh, as Lens Me Your Ears, we're also on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. I have my own Twitter. Uh, it's named after my blog, Flaw on the Iris. And Stephen, you've got a Twitter handle as well.
1: Yeah, I'm at. N S underscore S C O O K E.
0: You can also uh, throw some uh, money towards our Patreon account, where you can find that online. We'd very much appreciate because this uh, takes uh, some some resources in order to for do sure. these uh, these podcasts. We really appreciate you listening. Bottom line, thank you so much for listening and letting us go on and on about uh, movies, which we love to do, and uh, we appreciate that. Many, many thanks to CKDU, which airs Lens Me Your Ears every second Tuesday at 5.30, and many thanks to Village Sound Cast Network uh, for producing us and uh, bringing it all together. We will uh, be talking about movies again very soon. I hope you'll tune in. Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.